welcome to another episode of the Corrosion Journal interview series. My name is Sammy Miles, and I'm the Managing Editor-in-Chief of Corrosion Journal, AMP's peer-reviewed scientific journal. Today, we're going to discuss microbiologically influenced corrosion. I'm excited to welcome guests Jason Lee from the Naval Research Laboratory and Susmitha Kotu from DNV. Thank you for joining me today. My pleasure. So before we dive into our discussion, can you share a little about yourselves? Um, let's go ahead and start with Susmitha for this one. Hi, so my name is Susmita Kotu. I work for DNV. I've been with DNV for over five years now, working on internal corrosion, uh, like the broader internal corrosion, which includes um, other kinds of uh, abiotic corrosion management, as well as microbiologically influenced corrosion MIC management. A lot of what I do is laboratory testing to see if MIC is the cause of corrosion, how severe it is, um, which biocides are better suited for uh, being effective at mitigating MIC by testing them out in the lab, doing failure analysis of uh, samples collected in the field from like any sort of failure that has happened where MIC is suspected. So a broad range of MIC management. I've actually been working in this field for 10 years now. I did my PhD in this field, we did a couple of summer internships in the industry, and I wanted to uh, make a career out of it. So yeah, uh, so that's about me. Uh, my name is Jason Lee. I work for the Naval Research Laboratory in the Ocean Sciences Division. Um, I've been in the MIC field since 2001 when I started at the NRL. Um, before that, I got my master's and PhD from the University of Virginia under Rob Kelly. Um, I'm a classically trained um, corrosionist, electrochemist, and um, I dabble in the biology section of it. For the, the Navy, we work in natural waters. So naturally, there are microorganisms that we have to deal with throughout our systems. Um, that includes both atmospheric as well as uh, immersed conditions. Um, as, yeah. Wonderful. And so to start us off, what is microbiologically influenced corrosion or MIC? And, and with that kind of, what are some of the industries, the environments and the structures that it affects and how do we distinguish it from other types of corrosion? Do you wanna start Jason? Oh, yes. So my definition of MIC is the deterioration of a material due to the presence and or metabolomic processes of microorganisms. Uh, MIC is prevalent across all environments and industries. Traditionally, oil and gas production has received the most attention, um, but other systems, including power generation and cooling systems, are highly susceptible due to the use of natural waters. Uh, storage of water and fuels is also very prevalent in MIC. Um, for, uh, in terms of distinguishing MIC from other types of uh, corrosion, it's not straightforward. It's what most of uh, MIC researchers spend their lives um, doing is trying to distinguish MIC from a natural or from an abiotic environment. Um, the two main issues with MIC are that it it isn't in a, of itself a different mechanism, corrosion mechanism. It activates other corrosion mechanisms like pitting. Um, the other main issue is that uh, microorgan microorganisms are everywhere. They're in all our environments. So just their presence in the system does not mean it, they have an effect on the corrosion itself. 
Jason, I think you covered pretty much the big overview of make, but I, I do wanted to add a couple things or highlight a couple things. Yeah, microorganisms are everywhere. So any, any place where there's water and nutrients for microorganisms, you could have MIC happening. So the biggest challenge, as Jason mentioned, is trying to distinguish uh, whether MIC is happening or it's just that microorganisms are present just like anywhere else. And there's other kinds of corrosion mechanisms going on. I do want to, I do want to mention about uh, some of the fields where we think MIC could be a topic is with the new with the energy transition and talks of like low uh, low carbon fuels and net zero. MIC potentially could be a concern with underground hydrogen storage, uh, with wind farms and like uh, foundation structures uh, for wind uh, for wind turbines, and also any solar farms because we're talking about metal being put in soil. There's microorganisms so. Traditionally, we've always thought of make being confined to more like oil and gas or uh, in your case, uh, uh, Jason, with like uh, naval structures, uh, ship hulls and jet fuel or diesel tanks. But I think with energy transition, there may be newer opportunities for us all to explore make and learn more about make. That's that's really interesting. I had never thought about it in um solar and wind um industries before with the components where it's touching soil um so that's interesting good to learn something new and and building off of that can we predict when and where MIC will occur I know Jason had just touched on some of the complications really in narrowing it down but are we able to predict maybe when it might occur so likely likelihood for MIC can be predicted like with a probability, but to definitively say that MIC will occur because of XYZ reasons or saying um, because of XYZ, we think the, or we are able to predict corrosion rate for MIC. I, I don't think that that is possible. Uh, we are still far away from getting to that definitive stage in MIC. It's more like likelihood um, so, for example, if we know there's water, there's nutrients, there's a lot of solids, there's low flow or stagnation, all of that could mean make is likely again, uh, and all 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 of that along with the presence of microorganisms. You always need that. That's a given. So, um, the fact that I did not mention it does not mean you you can have make without uh, microorganisms, but. That's a given that microorganisms have to be there, but with all of the other environmental factors uh, or other kinds of uh, other uh, influences that are present. So we could say make is likely, but not definitively say make for sure will happen. To build off of what uh, Shusmisa said, um, I, I, I'll, I'll tackle the, the hard question first, which is when, you know, when will make occur and um, that is a almost sometimes impossible question to answer because to answer that, you need to know the initiation of when the corrosion started and most of these systems are closed. So we cannot observe when the corrosion actually begins. Um, and without knowing the start of it, we can't definitively say what the rate of the corrosion is gonna be in the system. So we can't, predict how long a structure is going to last under a certain amount of certain conditions without knowing the onset. Um, to kind of repeat what uh, Chief Mitha had mentioned, for myself, uh, when we're talking about where MIC will occur, 
we we know uh, certain systems and environments that it it's very susceptible to. But um, the steps I go through is is uh, water. Water is the number one. Water is needed for um, microbiology to grow. Some systems already have water in them. So next, I move to a susceptible material. Um, when I mean that, I mean like a well, um, as opposed to a base metal or a well that we know um, area an area where welding is not always that great. Um, the final one is usually uh, the operational environment that increases susceptibility, such as like dead legs or places where it gets a little warmer um, to proliferate microorganisms or areas that aren't getting cleaned as much. All of those are areas that we can kind of pinpoint and maybe monitor those areas more than um, regions which we are pretty sure are not going to have uh, mixed susceptibility. That makes sense. So we can kind of narrow down and, and guess that there could be problems with MIC more likely in these areas, but we don't really know for sure if it's going to occur and really when it started, kind of put that in a nutshell. So yes. with the difficulty in really nailing that down, um, what are some of the ways we can prevent MIC from occurring or mitigate it once it's detected? Um, let's start with you on this one, Jason. So the, the first one is material selection. Having a material that is more Gen and generally corrosion resistant will prevent, prevent MIC from occurring. Um, oftentimes with a lot of things, cost is the driving factor in a material selection. So you often have to use a cheaper, more uh, less corrosion resistant material to um, for a project. You just don't have the budget to make everything out of these super high alloy systems. Um, coatings is another way to prevent um, Nick, in addition to other um, types of corrosion, sometimes coatings aren't applicable. You can't use them in a certain system, especially if heat transfer is involved. Um, cathodic protection can be used. Uh, it can be kind of controversial, though, depending on um, different literature of how far negative you have to polarize your system. Cleaning and housekeeping can help. And what I mean by that, I, I mean... If a system doesn't is not supposed to have water in it, getting the water out in a regular time frame is utmost important importance. Um, that includes water removal, especially for fuel tanks. Uh, Biosize can be used in batch or continuous doses to uh, suppress the biological component of systems. Operational conditions, um, keeping a system running constantly so that it has oxygen in it all the time as opposed to going stagnant where uh, dissolved oxygen levels decrease enough for sulfate reduction to start off. Um, and then monitoring. For myself, monitoring the biological, chemical, and electrochemical parameters of the system, especially areas that you know are susceptible, you can use that data to identify when a system goes off of parameter specs and know that maybe you not, might now have a mix susceptibility situation that you can prevent. And lastly, the mitigation part, which is a lot smaller. It involves cleaning, usually by mechanical or chemical treatments, followed by biocides. And then um, you also can mitigate through operational maintenance changes, maybe increase your housekeeping or uh, cleaning of the system, making sure it is uh, 
slimes and all kinds of things that build up in operation are removed. You're never going to be able to sanitize the system, but at least keeping it clean so that the operation of it uh, reduces the likelihood of occurring. And Susmita, any additional yeah. thoughts there? Yes, yes. Um, I think what Jason covered the wide overview of everything, but from a like a pipeline operations perspective, which is what a lot of what we deal with on a day-to-day -day basis is about pigging, which is a physical form of mitigation, does help with removal of any water that is stagnant in the system, removal of solids, which are um which which are these nice little nice little spots for microorganisms and biofilms to grow and proliferate and be protected from the rest of the system. So pigging also helps remove solids and even sometimes depending on the kinds of pigs, uh, if they if it's a pig with brushes, it can also help remove any biofilm that is stuck onto the pipe surface. So physical mitigation is one, and then Jason mentioned chemical mitigation. Uh, there's biocides and also some corrosion inhibitors that. Uh, have some biocidal claims, so they can help maybe disperse or uh, uh, help disperse biofilms or help uh, biocides get inside biofilms by dispersing the biofilm itself. So, and and then the most effective mitigation from like a pipeline perspective again is a combination of both, where you would first do pigging to help remove any solids or biofilms, and then use your chemicals. So the chemical is chemical has less to do with more solids being removed and the fact that the solids are not interfering with the chemical performance. And then now you have the chemical uh, being able to reach the pipe surface. Uh, without all the solids that are present to actually be more effective. So a combination method would actually be most useful uh, for preventing and mitigating pink. Wonderful. And what are some of the recent advances in understanding, detecting, and preventing NIC? So in the last, uh, I would say, 10 years-ish, there has been a lot of uh, focus and widespread adoption of uh, more advanced and more reliable microbiological methods, such as like ATP um, or qPCR and DNA sequencing. So ATP is a method that uh, that that can uh, measure the molecule ATP, which is like an energy storage molecule present in all living cells, including humans. Uh, presence of ATP and the numbers or concentration of ATP can be correlated to the activity of microorganisms. So that can be a proxy for if microorganisms are active and are they causing corrosion. So combining a method like ATP with some of the more advanced DNA techniques like qPCR or DNA sequencing can help us identify which types of microorganisms are present. Um, with these DNA-based techniques. Um, so for example, qPCR can be used to get info on the total numbers of bacteria and total numbers of archaea, and also specifically numbers of um, specific functional groups of microorganisms. Very commonly, sulfate-producing bacteria and acid-producing bacteria are seen in MYC, but we know a lot of mixed scenarios where those two are not present and MYC is actually mediated by methanogens or sulfur oxidizing bacteria, iron oxidizing bacteria. So there's no one um, group of microorganisms that is always present and it's not a combination or it's not. And we don't even know if that full 
if the list that we have right now is all inclusive. So, but what we do know is if you can combine more methods, like a method like ATP, which does not look at specifically a type of microorganism, but overall looks at the microbial activity and methods like DNA sequen sequencing and qPCR, which look at specific types of microorganisms or total numbers of microorganisms. And then that would give uh, like an overview of the characterizing the microbial community. So in the last 10 years, there's been a lot of focus on adopting these methods uh, instead of the more traditionally used seed integration bottles, which have some disadvantages. Again, every method has its own disadvantages, but the fact that there's more reliable methods, that has been one area that has helped assist a better understanding of microbiological communities that are associated with MIC. And then um, I would say there's more emphasis now on um, on the fact that it's not just the mere presence of microorganisms that causes MIC, but um, also trying to integrate information about the microbiology, which is the community, the types, the numbers, all of that, along with what is the chemical environment like, what is the material that is there, what types of what types of corrosion products are being formed, are those corrosion products uh, characteristic to abiotic mechanisms or are they uh, characteristic to some of the MIC mechanisms that we know of and then trying to integrate all of that with the operational data and then using that info for diagnosing MIC um, for any failure analysis for ongoing monitoring so I would say like these are in my view like the top two areas where there's been a lot of understanding and research focus in the last 10 years ish. Well, Shusmita has covered it pretty much in whole. Um, I, I think from from my standpoint, the the two advances are um, in either in operational conditions where you can use risk-based modeling to identify um, areas that are going to be susceptible to MIC. That's where a lot of the modeling has been driven and it helps operators and owner operators and users to predict where MIC will happen. Um, from an academic standpoint, for myself, it's more uh, about looking at MIC in more and more of a holistic view. So taking parts of all the different evidence you can and weighing them equally. Um, we all have our internal biases. I'm a, I'm a material person, I'm an electrochemist. So I naturally um, give more weight to corrosion parameters of a system as opposed to microbiology. And uh, I would say microbiologists oftentimes give more weight to the microbiological components. I think the advancements have been where people have been working together of different um, backgrounds and subject, subject matter expertise and giving each other the weight of uh, their evidence so that we can um, predict this a little bit better and understand the mechanisms that are going on behind it, the MIC that's happening in different systems. Also, I think trying to come to terms with each system is going to be a little different. So a anything that you develop for oil and gas, a, a prediction system is not going to be necessarily applicable for something, say like a a water storage system or a heat exchanger. They're 
these these systems are very unique. And actually, a lot of systems, the same type of system, have different operating and exposure conditions. So getting a, a bigger view of it all, stepping back and incorporating all the data you have, don't dismiss everything. Um, there are parts of it that you don't necessarily understand. If you don't understand it, I always recommend someone going to someone to talk about it. I don't know a lot about the new molecular microbiological techniques. So I always work with my microbiologists or mycologists if it's fungi. Um, but embracing that we're all in this together and that we all need each other to prevent Mick from occurring. Yeah, I agree with you, Jason, that Mick does require a lot of interdisciplinary focus and it's getting better <laughs> over the years, definitely gotten a lot better over the years. Agreed. That's good to hear. And uh, with that, probably kind of related to that, what are some of the current challenges that we're having with Mick? And are there some areas that still need some more research? It's kind of, my guess is it's going to be a yes on, on more areas for research, but let's start with you on that one, Jason. So the answer is yes. And I've always said the holy grail of MIC research and everything that people work into it is trying to focus on the activity. And I don't like using that word because it's kind of generalized, but I'll use it anyways. The activity of a microorganism and how that activity relates to a corrosion rate in real time. That That is the, the, the holy grail for me of microbiologically influenced corrosion. We're continually getting there um, from multiple angles. Uh, microbiologists are getting closer and closer. Uh, material people are getting closer and closer. And we can't forget environmental chemists because we're, we're working in a chemical environment and understanding the chemistry of the system, abiotic chemistry, specifically how it changes as microorganisms uh, proliferate and grow in a system is another area that needs to be filled. So all three of those environments coming together and linking them together, uh, their effects. The future challenges um, is, for me, is probably green technology. And when I mean green technology, I mean um, materials specifically that are greener. So they're less toxic to us. If they're less toxic to us, they're naturally gonna be less toxic to microorganisms. So say, a, a, a for example, fuels. Conventional fuels have all kinds of really nasty chemicals in them, benzenes, and just some really awful things that are very hazardous to us. The newer, greener fuels that are made out of biomass are naturally less toxic to us and microorganisms. That means more organisms can grow in those systems. Um, materials. Uh, a lot of coatings, we've gone through a, a coating revolution in the last 20, 30 years, getting rid of uh, isocyanates and other things that are very toxic. And the coatings themselves are becoming less uh, biocidal naturally. Um, oftentimes, these new coatings remove a toxic component of them. And then to prevent growth on them, they have to add back in a biocide of some kind. Um, and that's not just with coatings, that's with other materials as well. So as we become more and more environmentally friendly, um, 
it's environmentally friendly for us, but it's also also environmentally friendly for microorganisms. And Susmita, anything you want to add on that one? Yes. Um, so a lot of uh, MIC research or MIC management when it comes to in like from an industry perspective, anytime there is MIC, management of MIC is mostly reactive. Um, after the fact, after MIC has happened, after a failure, or after a lot has already happened, that's when um, operators start to take a look at, okay, what is the problem, and then try to mitigate it. So it almost sets us, up, sets us back of a few years because we lost all that time. Again, not saying that anytime you have microorganisms, you should start mitigating, but um, knowing when microorganisms are present and knowing when um, and monitoring them to see if they're actually causing corrosion, that's that's useful. So more research on what about MIC management can be what can be done to MIC management to make it more proactive. And then a lot of times MIC diagnosis is improper. What I mean by that is typically when other abiotic mechanisms are excluded or when microorganisms are identified, the conclusion is that MIC is the reason, but that may not be the case. Uh, just the presence of microorganisms does not mean they are uh, causing corrosion. And uh, a lot of times um, proper samples have to be collected and they have to be preserved appropriately. So a lot more, I would, there's knowledge now um, we there's a NASTA AMP standard now that's being worked on related to that topic, but dissemination of that knowledge and making sure that uh that not that uh those procedures that are uh documented are being used would be really helpful to address some of the challenges. And then I did mention in the previous question about the use of more advanced molecular microbiological data, which helps get, get us better understanding of the microbiological community. But what we are seeing is that there's not always a direct correlation between numbers or even types of micro, uh, microorganisms to corrosion threat or corrosion severity. So no uh, a lot of times there's maybe some correlation, but you cannot again definitively say that if you have more than 10,000 bacteria in a, in a mill of a sample, then you would have corrosion. So there is that information gap there and a lot more research needs to be done to address that. I think what would be truly helpful is having some sort of molecular biomarkers that can be used for re, uh, reliable diagnosis of MIC or any failures and which can also be used as leading indicators uh, for MIC management. And um, in on that topic, I did want to mention that DNB, in partnership with ExxonMobil and Microdeal Insights, has kicked off a JIP joint industry project with five other uh, upstream and midstream companies with this goal. Um, so if, if you're interested, you can always contact me, but the goal is to dis uh, see if there's any biomarkers. I discover those biomarkers, develop assays for them, and then uh, develop KPIs, which can be used for interpretation. And hopefully that can help address some of the gaps that we have with Nick. Again, not saying that that's the ultimate answer to everything, but that may be, uh, that may be a step in the right direction. Wonderful. And are there, do you have any final thoughts before we wrap up today? Yes. I'd like to uh, mention that uh, the annual AMP conference, which is in New Orleans, my hometown this year, uh, the first week of March, has 
both a microbiologically influenced corrosion technical symposium, but it also has the uh, research topical symposium on MIC in honor of Brenda Little. Uh, I worked with Brenda for 20 years. She was uh, a uh, advocate for MIC throughout her entire career, still is an advocate for MIC. Um, she still publishes consistently and works in the area. Um, and it's a, it's a big, big deal to me, um, recognizing all the efforts she's done in the area, not only for MIC, but also for AMP itself, um, for multiple volunteering and multiple committees throughout her career. Wonderful. And Susmita, did you have anything else? I did want to say one thing. Um, if, if there's anything you take away from this podcast, it's that just microorganisms does not mean there's make, um, but also it does not mean that oh, because it does not mean make, maybe you don't need to do anything. <laughs> Always monitor, as Jason emphasized, monitoring is very important. Uh, measure what's happening in your system, whether it's microbiological populations or corrosion. There, uh, that's from like an industry perspective and then more interdisciplinary focus for academic, academic research. So, yeah. Wonderful. And thank both of you for, thanks to both of you for joining me today. If anybody wants to learn more and follow up later, what's one way that they can get in contact with you? Uh, Sammy, they can uh, either send me an email, so sismita.coto uh, at dnv.com, or uh, they can even reach out to me on LinkedIn. I'll be happy to share some resources or chat one-on-one -on -one with someone about the topic. Wonderful. And with that, I'm Sammy Miles here with Jason Lee and Susmita Kotu, and thanks for listening to another episode of the Corrosion Journal interview series. You can subscribe to AMP Podcasts if you haven't already on Apple, Google, Spotify, and all the major distributors. If you want to learn about the journal, make sure to visit corrosionjournal.org. You can also find full episodes of all AMP podcasts on amp.org. That is A-M-P-P dot O-R-G. We'll be back soon with another episode. Thanks for listening.